One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm really delighted that this season is sponsored by Tide Business Current Accounts. I'm a Tide customer myself. It's where the account for my photography studio lives, and I've been really pleased with how they've looked after us for the last few years. They make it really easy for sole traders and freelancers to set up business accounts for free, with handy tools like accounting integrations, invoicing, and much more. People often think that your money isn't protected in a challenger bank or app-based bank, but Tide has FSCS protection in the UK, just like traditional bank accounts. Tide is dedicated to small businesses, and whenever I've needed help, the people on the app's chat function have been super responsive. Tide helps me grow my business. Go to tide.co or download the app today to find out more about getting started. This season of The Solo Collective is brought to you by Pension B, an easy way to combine your existing pensions or start a new one. Pension B is a leading online pension provider and has enabled thousands of people to feel pension confident. I feel quite strongly about pensions. For a big chunk of my solo working life, I didn't have a pension, just an old workplace pension that I'd automatically contributed to in my early 20s. I have sorted things out now, though. I also feel strongly about women getting pensions. Women typically face an income gap of 38% compared to men when they retire in the UK, which is down to a combination of lower pay throughout our careers, taking career breaks to care for others, and women just not having their own pensions at all. This even leads to female pensioners living in poverty, as many as one in five in the UK. Download the app or head to pensionbee.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. Hello and welcome back to The Solo Collective. I'm Rebecca Seal and in this episode we are going to be talking about movement which might sound like a slightly left field topic to choose for a podcast about working by yourself but I think it's actually a very appropriate one. I read a book called Move, The New Science of Body Over Mind probably about a year ago. It's by Caroline Williams who is our interviewee for today and it was all about the way in which There's a constant interplay between our brains and our bodies, constant communication, messages running backwards and forwards about how we feel and what we're doing. It's quite new science, but I found it absolutely compelling. And so that was why I wanted Caroline to come and talk to us today about the impact of movement when you work by yourself and the ways in which we can increase our movement and build movement into our solo working lives and why we might want to do that, what it might do for our creativity as well as for our well-being and for our longevity and for our brain health. I mean, this is big stuff and it's really important. And Caroline is so good at explaining it in really clear and understandable terms. So I hope you get as much from this as I did. Thank you very much for joining us on The Solo Collective. Thank you for having me. It sounds like somewhere I should be hanging out a lot more often. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what your solo working life is like and how much time you're on your own and where you are when you're working by yourself. Yeah, well, I've been freelance or mostly freelance for sort of more than 
20 years. Um, and that sort of started off by having a desk by my bed. And uh, the only way I could mainly, I could get through that without going completely mad is I had a dog. So I would get up in the morning, take the dog out for a walk and then come back. And then my bedroom became my office. So um, I'm slightly different to that now. I do have a, a spare room, which is my office, but I still start the day with a, a long dog walk and then come back and eventually get myself into a position to work. So I, I've been doing it on my own for a long time, but since COVID, my husband now works at home. So that was really difficult to start with because, you know, I'm used to peace and quiet and just being able to sit and think and move around the house and not worry about what anybody else is doing. So I had to adjust to that. And now I quite like it. But then he's going back to work three days a week in April. So it'll be a shift back into being more alone. And I'm not sure that I'm going to like it as much as I thought I would at the beginning, but we'll see. I wanted to talk to you because we've never really discussed movement on the podcast before. We've sort of talked about the value of exercise a lot and the difficulties or the dangers, I guess, around kind of sedentary lifestyles, but we haven't got into it as a topic in the way that you're book move did it was brilliant and it changed quite a few things for me in terms of how I exercise and how I move and we'll get into more of that further in I should think but I guess one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about is how different is the way that we use our bodies now in comparison to say a hundred years ago before work became this desk based what are the big differences in terms of how many hours I guess we spend moving or not moving it's been a slow creep i think over over decades and decades and we've got to this point where we don't have to move at all if we don't want to you know you can do everything from just sitting and swiping and moving your thumbs but you know we move sort of significantly less than people even in the 60s so i think even office working you used to have to get up to go and talk to people you know before email happened you know you'd have to go between different departments even whereas now you know remote working is easy got email we yeah we don't we've we've sort of created this world for ourselves where we where moving is really optional and it's also we've got this culture where we're expected to be you know this presenteeism thing you're supposed to be at your desk uh, and visible and visibly working and online and people can see when you're online when you're not online so I think all of that has sort of led to this gradual creep to the point where I mean the statistics suggest that the average adult spends 70 percent of our time sedentary like not moving at all and that's that's not even that's our waking hours so that doesn't even factor in how much time we're spending lying down when we're asleep it's extraordinary isn't it it's such a radical shift I mean and it's interesting because I hadn't really thought about it until I read your book and I hadn't really kind of paid attention to it like I knew it as it were yeah I guess we kind of just accept it it's just sort of happened so gradually quite under the radar really and we sort of just have gone along with it because it's easy and because you know much as our bodies have evolved to move and our minds and bodies work together to make that a good idea. We've also evolved to conserve energy whenever we possibly can. So that's why sitting and not moving is so comfortable and comfortting because that's an advantage if you're a a creature uh, who's hunter and gathering and and needs to make hay while the sun shines, then sitting is, is rewarding. So we have to fight against it, which is a barrier as well. Yeah, that's really challenging. I mean, is, so I've read this phrase so many times and I think I used it in my book, but, and I know that there's good sort of data behind it, but do you agree that sitting is the new smoking? (laughs) Is it that dangerous? Well, I mean, it is pretty bad when you think it's linked to everything from 
Alzheimer's to, you know, not never mind sort of obesity and diabetes and all the physical things that could kill you, you know, mental health have all been linked to to the amount of time we spend sitting. So it's clearly pretty bad for us. I think the thing is about being the new smoking, you can't smoke a little bit and it'd be okay. Whereas you can sit a little bit, you know, you do need to rest. We, we do need to sit mm. down. And, you know, studies of hunter-gatherer, modern hunter-gatherer, populations suggest they rest as well it's just that they rest actively so they're activating they might they might squat they might kneel down you know they they, they're sort of supporting their body weight rather than flopping down into a chair so they're sitting and they're sitting so you can sit in a way that isn't necessarily as bad for your health and you can you can break it up so sitting is inevitable even for people who you know make a living writing and talking about movement you know a certain amount of sitting down is inevitable but if you break it up with periods of movement movement Mm. snacks if you like throughout the day then that can really help so yeah in that way it's not like smoking because even if you have a couple of fags a day that's still bad yeah so um yeah almost but not quite okay okay that's helpful i feel as though a lot of the research that you uncovered and did for move was quite new stuff what do we know newly as it were about the relationship between the brain and the body and how the body moves and what that connectivity is and does so some of the the sort of the new approach has been a long time coming in that you know for a long time cognitive science has been has reigned that you know the brain is in charge and the brain tells the body what to do and all the thinking and feeling and everything happens in the head and that's gradually been changing over the last maybe 20 years or so in that we now know that embodied cognition is important the way we move our bodies the messages that are coming so the interoceptive messages. So interoception is the sense of chemical and physical state of the body, which is constantly going to the brain to update it about how things are going physically. You know, all those things feed into our mental state. And so that shift has started to happen. It just hasn't really got through to the average person, I guess. It's sort of starting to happen in neuroscience circles and in psychology circles. But it is something that's quite new as an approach. I don't know whether you want me to talk about any of the specific ones. Yeah, yeah, I'd love that. Okay, so one that really surprised me is that when we are putting weight on our bones and moving, our bones, you know, which we tend to think of as sort of these inert sticks that just sort of hold us up. When we are moving against gravity, then our bones release a hormone that's called osteocalcin. And this has nothing to do with building up bones. We know that when we stress our bones that, you know, they build up bone density. But osteocalcin doesn't play a role in that. What it does, it goes via the blood to the brain and has a role in improving memory or keeping memory healthy. And and also in animal studies, it seems to reduce anxiety as well, trait anxiety. So that's a very direct link between the body and the brain and how we feel that's kind of really emerging and, and is kind of a, a big surprise. So, you know, we've known for ages that if you don't challenge your bones, you lose bone density, but you also lose this this hormone osteocalcin. And as we age, we, we naturally produce less of this hormone. So as we get older, from midlife at least onwards, we need to be challenging our bodies and moving against gravity as much as possible. So that was one of the ones that kind of really came and slapped me in the face and was like, come on, really? It's not just a do exercise, endorphins, you'll feel better. There's a whole system of hormones and nervous pathways and, you know, various nuts and bolts that link 
things that happen in the body with the brain and the mind. It really is worth taking seriously. I think that was the section of the book where I started to think about weight training. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that changed for me after having read the book is that I now quite seriously lift weights um, at the gym. And in Mm -hmm. fact, I have weights at home now too. Uh, And I mean, I find it really pleasurable. Like I wouldn't have expected that and I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have experienced that in the past, I don't think. I mean, I just wouldn't have been open to it. I just wouldn't have picked up weights at the gym. Yeah. I thought it was just for blokes who wanted burly muscles. Yeah, yeah. And then one of the things that struck me in that section was about memory. And one of the consequences, I think, of the, for me of the pandemic has been a not great memory. It was fascinating to read what you were writing about osteocalcin and the relationship between memory and the body and think, huh, <laughs> Yeah. I wonder. <laughs> I wonder I what's wonder. going on here. Uh, yeah, I think strength training is something that's really easy to miss out, mm. is, you know, especially for women. Um, but it's so important. And as well as the osteocalcin stuff, there's really, really strong evidence that becoming physically stronger improves self-esteem and confidence and is really effective at decreasing anxiety and symptoms of depression and it just makes life feel a bit more manageable and this comes back to these messages that come from the body to the brain again and so we've got these you know interceptive messages that are constantly giving updates on how things are going and if our muscles and bones are weak and not capable that's the sort of background messaging that your brain is getting about how capable you are in the world. Mm. And so upgrading that by by increasing strength can change that sort of, you know, think of it as background music to your life so that you just have this, if for reasons that you can't really put your finger on, you just feel a bit more capable and that you can cope with difficult things. And there's studies dating back to the 80s of, of young teenage girls who they did weight training to increase their strength by 40% over 12 weeks. And they started to report increasing confidence in things that had nothing to do with being able to fight or feeling like they had to physically stand up for themselves, but just in difficult conversations and, you know, challenging emotional situations. And so this could be down to these messages that are coming through the body that have just been improved. So yeah, I mean, it's important for, for memory. It's important for just feeling like you can handle life. And the important thing is the changes in emotional and mental state came in studies before anything could be seen in the muscles. So it isn't about getting beefy muscle. You don't have to suddenly get, you know, really sinewy arms. Mm. It's, it's an inside job that you, you're telling your body you can handle life and, and, and it just makes things feel a little bit easier. I love that. Can we talk about the ways in which different types of movement can impact our psychological well-being and the the kind of the feedback loops that you get? Yeah, so one that that I found really interesting as well, and this is very, very early research, is sort of going back to what we were saying about sitting and that there are ways of sitting that are better than others. So so this is the, the link between the body's stress system and the parts of the brain that tell our bodies to move. There's researchers in uh, Philadelphia who I went to visit and they're doing these experiments where they have traced the neural pathways, so literally the wiring diagram from the adrenal glands, which sit on top of our kidneys. And they've traced those all the way back to the brain to see where they end up. And they end up in the part of the brain that sort of goes across the top of your head like an Alice band or headphones, um, the motor cortex. And specifically within that area of the brain, 
they end up in parts of the brain that move the core, the, the muscles of the trunk. So this is interesting because we've known for a long time through lots of psychology studies that posture matters for state of mind. So when you're uh, when you're more upright, you feel more capable. When you're kind of slumped, it's sort of a sign of defeat. And this is part of your body language that's come through evolution. You know, you can see the same thing happening in chimpanzees that have lost a fight or whatever. But the good thing about being a human is you can override that. You can sort of, you can reverse engineer the system and say, okay, what if I'm feeling crappy and I decide to sit up and I decide to engage my core or I decide to do some exercise that specifically targets the core? What does that do to my stress system? And so this new pathway is really interesting because it suggests that if you're feeling stressed, then one way to regulate that response is not about thinking your way out of it and thinking, oh, for goodness sake, calm down, you're overreacting. Maybe you can use your body as a tool to access a state of calm. And that might also explain why things like yoga and Tai Chi and Pilates are sorts of exercise that are are known for reducing levels of stress. Yeah, it's fascinating. And what about stretching? Is there anything on that as well? Yeah, stretching. I mean, I think we sort of know just through living that, you know, when you've been scrunched up in a chair, that one of the easiest ways to feel good is to take a, a good stretch you know and actually that's that's known as pandiculation it's like an almost unconscious drive to kind of it sort of wakes up your um your muscles and your body to sort of prepare it for movement but the actual act of stretching so there's, there's two things it does one it sort of releases muscles from a state of tension that you get when you're sitting for too long but more importantly there's this other tissue that's found pretty much everywhere through the body called fascia, which comes in various layers just under the skin. It wraps the muscles, it wraps the organs, it's through the body cavity. But it's it's used to be thought that it was a sort of fairly inert tissue that just sort of wrapped stuff up neatly into bags. Whereas now we're starting to realize that it's a an active tissue and that when it's stretched, there are changes that happen sort of at the cellular level. It changes the shape of the cells and it releases anti-inflammatory molecules and and in studies in, in animal studies when people when animals have been injured and they've been stretched they heal a lot faster when they've been stretched so the inflammation is turned off when it's done its job and that makes healing happen more efficiently and the other thing we know about inflammation is that it happens through stress it's linked to you know depression heart disease pretty much everything that can go wrong in the human body and mind is linked to chronic inflammation that doesn't turn itself off and so there's this intriguing link that maybe stretching tells the body that it's okay to turn this inflammation reaction off and sets sets you back to a you know a level of of health and calm and 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 can maybe just get you over the hump of a stressful time and and move on to the next one. That's so interesting. How did we get to the point, given all of this, given what we now know kind of scientifically, but also what we know from our own experience of our bodies, i.e. that stretching feels good, why have we got to a point that sort of, A, creates a world where movement is, as you say, optional, and B, why do we think that you have to sit still in order to think? Specifically thinking about this with reference to my kids, because they won't sit still. They're four and seven. Why would they sit still? And it drives me at times absolutely insane. And I was trying to unpick, what is it about that? What? Why do we think? Why have we been taught for, I would say, a few generations? I mean, it's quite a Victorian notion, right? That, yes, that we yes. should sit still. Sit still and think. 
Yeah, and it's bizarre because, yeah, why? It's a good question. Why do we think that? And, you know, generations of the biggest thinkers of history have known about the, you know, the, the, the value of moving for thinking. So, you know, Charles Darwin, he built a thinking path at his home when he couldn't get his head around, you know, all this data he picked up from his travels couldn't quite get the headspace, partly because he had small children at home as well, you know, knocking on his door, Dad, you can just imagine it. Even in Victorian times, that would have been really annoying. So he moved to the countryside and he built this thinking path where you just go, he would walk round and round and round this quarter of a mile path, just sort of thinking. Um, and we now know that, that that actually does something really beneficial to the brain for creative thinking. So the bit of the, bit of the brain that's behind the forehead, the prefrontal cortex, is the bit that keeps our thoughts in straight lines and thinking for the obvious solution, logical thinking. And that when we're moving at a pace where we don't really have to think about the movements we're making. So if you're a really good runner, that might be running. It's not me. You know, if it might be wandering, you know, going for a meandering walk, it might be cycling, whatever it is. That can temporarily turn down activity in this sort of thinking in straight lines part of the brain. And it lets the brain put together ideas in ways that might never have done before and then they sort of burst through and they're sort of ah right obviously that's the solution sort of moment and we know from lab studies that when we when we sort of electrically turn down this brain region people become way more creative they come up with way more out there ideas that might are crazy but they might just work and then we also know that in walking studies the same sort of thing happens We've got this culture, and I think, and even for people who are freelance and are their own boss, you know, it it took a lot for me to down tools and go and have a, a wander. You know, I I spent many unhappy days banging my head off the desk, going, oh, I just I can't work out how to write this story because I've got so many things in my head. The minute I go for a walk, it starts to kind of settle and starts to make more sense. But you have to sort of get over that mental block that, no, no, I should be sitting, I should be working. And I think we need to start thinking of going for a walk or a swim or whatever it happens to be as part of your work, Mm. as part of the creative process and give ourselves permission to do that. Yeah, it's so difficult though, isn't it? It's so hard to untangle. I did know about the powerful effect of nature and fractal patterns Mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, and quite often when I give workshops, I say, you know, people say, what's the one thing I can do? And I say, get, go out, finish this workshop, say bye to me and then go outside um, and look at yeah. a tree. And yet, even though I know all of that stuff, I find it really hard to act on myself. I find it incredibly yeah. difficult to to act on my own knowledge. How do you move? Like, what is your movement kind of, I don't know, I don't want to use the word routine, but like your plan, your intention. <laughs> Having a very demanding dog that was, he's, he's part New Zealand sheepdog and they're bred to run up and down mountains for 14 hours straight, okay. barking loudly. So he needs a lot of exercise. So he, he's very good. So we get a five mile usually walk in in the morning. So I drop my son off at this train station, early doors, and then we go out for a, a walk. Then there is some sitting involved, but what I try and do is act on the research that shows. So there are, there are declines in brain function over long, long periods of time, which are linked to the amount of time you spend sedentary. And that's regardless of whether you do high intensity exercise during the day. So it's not necessarily about doing more hit sessions or going to the gym three times rather than once. It's about breaking up the sitting. So I try and break 
up the sitting. So when I get bored, I'll go downstairs, I'll take my laptop, I'll sit on the floor because that's a better way of sitting. It's an active way of sitting. It encourages fidgeting. And I just try and sort of run up and down the stairs whenever I get bored, go out for another walk. I go for long bike rides with friends as a kind of way of, you know, talking through stuff, a kind of therapy slash exercise. It's a real mixture. I do yoga. I don't have one thing that I do. I'm not very good with routines, which is possibly why I'm a freelancer and and don't have a proper job where you have to go and do the same thing every day. But I'm very conscious of the need to do something. So just trying to trying to factor it in as something and, and, and noticing as well when I'm feeling rubbish at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's the time I need to do something. doesn't matter what it is, just something. Because that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's often the moment when many of us would reach for caffeine or sugar as a, yeah. as a way through that kind of... Hump. And I definitely do both of those things too. <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, this season of The Solo Collective is sponsored by Tide. Tide has developed a platform for small businesses, which you can use without opening a bank account with them. It's called Cashflow Insights. Regardless of which bank you use for business banking, you can connect it to the Tide platform. And within 24 hours, you'll be getting insights such as cashflow predictions, credit score monitoring and advice about your income and outgoings. It can even tell you your credit status and help you look for business finance with no impact on your credit score. Connect your business bank account today to Tide and receive a £75 Uber or Uber Eats voucher. Limited availability. Terms and conditions apply and this offer runs until the end of March. Download the app or Google Tide Cashflow Insights to find out more. One of our sponsors this season is Pensionbee, a way to make setting up a self-employed pension easier. They do a pension specifically for self-employed people, so you can vary your contributions according to your income. One of the things that puts us solo workers off getting a pension is feeling like we won't always be able to afford to contribute. But this way, you can put in lump sums when you get paid for that big job, or trickle money in when things feel a little more precarious. Only 24% of self-employed people contribute into a private pension, even though in the UK, the government will top up our contributions. Go to pensionb.com slash self-employed pension to find out more. Download the app or head to pensionb.com for more information. Your capital is at risk. And are there any kinds of, (laughs) such a technical question, but are there any kinds of seating which you particularly are pro? Because I've done so far, I've, so I've got an adjustable standing desk, which I use very rarely. I stand a bit and a kind of very bog standard desk chair at the moment. But I've also sat on a Pilates ball. I've had a kneeling Mm -hmm. stool and I don't feel kind of particularly affectionate towards any of those options. I don't feel as though any of them were, were brilliant or kind of perfectly worked for me. Yeah. So I just wondered if there was a kind of an ultimate setup or is it a totally personal thing? Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent it is a personal thing. I mean, I've never really got on with sitting on Pilates balls either, but I can see that that is a good thing because then you, mm. you know, you have to engage your core. But I'm so easily distracted. I think that might be another way of just... <laughs> faffing around and thinking oh this is fun and just kind of not getting what I'm supposed to be doing I mean what I tend to do actually I'm four foot eleven I'm very short and my feet very rarely touch the floor no matter what chair I'm on and so I'm always I've usually got my legs crossed which I have now or you know I'm sort of kneeling up or generally even when I was in the office I used to do that I think it probably doesn't doesn't make you look that professional (laughs) but it sort of lends itself to fidgeting so I think anything that let sort of gets you sort of moving around and sitting more actively. So Mm. I guess not getting too comfortable. Although 
I am also guilty of occasionally at that three o'clock slump going onto the sofa and putting the laptop on my knees, which I think is bad for body, bad for mind, bad for productivity. It's, it's all round bad, but it is indeed comfortable. And uh, the, the chapter on the book that nobody ever asked me about, which surprises me, is the chapter on rest and that, you know, we do need to move our bodies, but on the other side of that, we do need to rest effectively as well because mm. whatever we're doing with it with this 70 percent of our time we're spending sedentary other research suggests that nearly everybody feels that they're not rested yeah whatever we're doing with all our lazing around we're not feeling particularly rested so that needs to be the other side of the coin so how do we rest it's one of my big things because i'm rubbish at it yeah i think it doesn't come naturally because you felt you feel guilty about all the things you're supposed to be doing so it's sort of anything that really takes your mind away from your troubles is rest and that can be it can be active it doesn't have to be sedentary Mm. it can be going for a run can be going for a swim and you know being completely immersed literally and and you can't think about anything else but it can also mean taking some time to be still and to tune into what the body is trying to tell you so one of the things that's important I think with with choosing the right movement for what you want is kind of just Tuning into what you need. Are you stressed and tense? I basically am quite highly strung by nature. And most of the time, if I need to move, I need to do something gentle, like some yoga or a gentle walk or something like that. Sometimes I'm lethargic. I'm feeling lazy and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing because of that. In which case I need to jump around to some, some loud music or go for a run. But you, you, it's hard to sort of tell the difference between those two things unless you stop for a minute and just sort of just listen to what your body and mind needs and then pick the right kind of movement or rest that will deliver that. I think that's a real challenge, isn't it? I definitely identify with a kind of sense that I might make a plan on on a given day and think, right, today I'm going to go to the gym, but then really not feel like it. And then you beat yourself mm. up because you're like, oh, I should be going to the gym. I really should. And you're so committed to this should yeah. that you can't assess what the need might actually be you're just blinkered to it you can't say I'm tired or I just don't want to (laughs) or I I need I need something else and it's really hard to give those sentiments legitimacy I think in our own minds because you've got this you've made a commitment to yourself yeah and I think once you've given yourself a bit of what you need Mm. if you've had the rest the chances are the next day you'll wake up and go okay I've had my rest now and I can I can face the world, I can go to the gym, I can do my work or whatever. Whereas if you'd push yourself through, you'd probably still be knackered tomorrow and still be having that fight and on and on it goes. So I think just taking a little bit of time to just check in with what you need and give yourself that. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You've missed one workout. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the stuff you've done on neuroplasticity, which I know is a big part of your of your working life. I wondered if there was anything that you'd come across in writing Override and, and the other stuff you've done on it in terms of things that would be really helpful for people who work by themselves, like ways in which we can kind of reprogram ourselves. <laughs> is, that, is that overstating yeah. the, the, the capacity of well, neuroplasticity? Override, my first book, really did come from this drive to be like, why can I not do this stuff? You know, why can why can't I focus? Why don't ideas, why doesn't creativity appear when I want it to? Mm. Um, you know, why am I so anxious all the time? Why can't I stop that? If neuroplasticity is a thing, I should be able to take all that and and sort it out. So I went around various labs around the world and said, right, come on, let's let's 
throw the best science at me and see what we can change. Uh, and, that in, and a lot of neuroscientists were quite interested in this as well. And I guess the results were sort of mixed depending on the skill at hand. So for things like focus and creativity, these turned out to be very much two sides of the same coin. And so what I basically learned through trying to improve my ability to focus is that our brains are not built to sit and focus for long periods of time. Attention is going to wane, it's going to wax and wane throughout the day. And we sort of just have to go with the flow because some of the studies on this suggest is that if we try too hard to focus, we can do it for short periods, but it becomes tiring and the brain can't keep it up for long. And then you end up, you know, falling off the wagon and end up, you know, deep into Instagram or whatever, never to return. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, if we do too much mind wandering, we never quite get into the flow and you want to be in this kind of relaxed flow state where you're interested you're sucked in, but not so hard that you can't keep it up for very long. And so it's, it's a matter of riding these waves of focus, letting your mind wander a little bit before bringing it back and just practicing that state of mind. So it was, ne- it was not so much about rewiring your brain. It was about understanding the way the brain works and working with it rather than trying to work against it. So on the other side of the coin from that is the creativity. So I think some people, like freelance writers, for example, tend to mind wander more than others. And while in the first chapter of the book, I was all about trying to stop that mind wandering and focus more. When I got to the chapter where I was trying to improve my ability to be creative, what came out of that was the state of being slightly away with the fairies all the time is what brings creativity. And so you don't want to get rid of it completely. You want to use it when it's appropriate and sort of keep it on a short leash when it's not so appropriate. Driving your brain rather than just being a passenger hurtling around and bumping into stuff. And did that change things profoundly for you in terms of the way you worked? Did you find that, I mean, is override still trickling down in the same way that solo is for me and move is for you as well? Yeah, I mean, it it is uh, in that when I have sort of long, tedious scientific papers to read, which I, I do today, trying to extract the meaning out of something that's quite worded quite badly (laughs) rather than so what I used to do is sit and think I am not moving until I've read this and I've made notes um, and I'm going to fall even if it takes me all day I'm going to sit here until I've done it whereas now I realize that that's counterproductive I can read a little bit make good notes and if I if I find myself being a little bit distracted I think I need a change of scenery so I'll go make a cup of tea and come back and then when I come back I might think actually, I'm going to sit somewhere else. And just and I just try and keep sort of moving around, keep allowing myself those little breaks. It's tricky to stop it turning into doom scrolling sometimes. Yeah. But that's the trick, to, to allow your brain a bit of breathing space and to just notice to myself, I need a break now, and then come back. And, and actually over time, so that might mean I read a paper in, I don't know, 40 minutes rather than three hours of, of misery. So yeah, I mean, it, it still is work in progress and I have to remind myself because it can be frustrating when it, you feel like you're taking too long to do something because you have to take so many breaks. But in the long run, it definitely pays off. So I feel as though there's a kind of theme emerging for me in all of this, which is kind of long run focused. <laughs> a lot of what we're talking about is about understanding that there is a kind of a much longer game in play than just what is happening in the exact moment. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's quite, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. And I, 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 one of the things is another thread actually, which is running through the, the series, this series of the podcast is about the kind of the curse of convenience and the, the allure that convenience culture has in making us think that because something's easy, it's good. Mm-hmm. And I feel as though you're, everything you're saying really kind of plays into that. Like just because it's easy to sit all the time doesn't mean it's a necessary good and just because we can do absolutely everything without moving from getting food delivered to us to every purchase we could possibly imagine that's not good (laughs) yes it's sort of to our detriment you know so in the long run if we're thinking of our sort of mental health social connections I mean one of the biggest things for for mental health is having some social connections which is really hard if you work on your own. I mean, in my early days as a freelancer, I used to literally go across the road and talk to the man in the corner shop because <laughs> I didn't speak to anybody all day. Yeah. And the, But yeah, the easy thing is to do is just to get, get inside your own head and stay there. But that's why movement can be really good because it forces you to get out of your own head. Actually, synchronized movement with other humans is a really good way to feel more connected to a larger society so that you know, for reasons that have to do with the way the brain works. So when we're moving our bodies, we know where our body is in space. If we're moving in synchrony with another human being, the information about their movements coming in through our senses confuses our brain because it synchronizes with the movements of our body that we can feel from the inside. And that sort of starts to break down this barrier of where my body ends and where yours begins. And so that's how you can feel part of something that's bigger than yourself quite easily. Even through dancing to music, if you're on your own, what you're doing there is you're dancing to sounds made by the movements of other human beings. So you're, in a way, moving with them. Mm. And so there's experiments that suggest that that's why dancing makes you feel like you're part of a bigger society. So even if you are alone. It's really powerful. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really brilliant. I loved that conversation. I loved hearing, again, some of the stuff that I already knew but find it hard to apply to my own life. Stuff about breaking up our working time about accepting that focused work doesn't always happen just by sitting at a desk and staring at a screen or a piece of paper. I love how Caroline explains everything so clearly. I don't know about you, it's a sunny day today, I'm going to go and walk up a hill. I think probably you should do whatever is the equivalent of that for you too. If you'd like to find out more about Caroline Williams, her website is carolinewilliams.net. Her books are called Move, The New Science of Body Over Mind and Override. And you can find her on Instagram at carolinewilliams underscore science. To find out more about me, you can go to howtoworkalone.com or find me on Instagram at bexseal or Twitter at Rebecca Seal. The Solo Collective is brilliantly produced by Hester Kant. 